We're continuing this morning uh, on our walk through the book of Romans. Uh, This morning we're in Romans chapter 3. We're going to be looking at Romans 3, verses 9 or 10. I'll figure it out once I get to it. Um, Verses 9 or 10 all the way through verse 23. And the title of the message this morning is Myth, Good News, and Irony. Myth, Good News, and Irony. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse... Okay, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb or grave. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in and of Yeshua HaMashiach to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Andy Stanley of um, North Point Community Church in Alpharetta, Georgia, tells the story of a Sunday school teacher who was trying to explain heaven to his class. And so what he does is he asks the class a series of questions to see what they already thought about the subject. He says... If I had a garage sale and sold all my stuff and gave the money to the church, would that get me into heaven? No, they all cried. Oh, well, if I cleaned the toilets in the church and mowed the lawn and gave all my money to the poor, would that get me into heaven? No, they all cried again. How about if I loved my wife and gave candy to every kid I saw and was kind to animals? Would that get me into heaven? No, they shouted. Well then, how can I get into heaven? And the kid in the back row pipes up and says, you got to be dead first. (laughs) Uh, I feel like Art Linkletter all of a sudden, and I am dating myself by saying that. Right. First prerequisite from heaven, for heaven, you have to be dead. Anybody who knows for sure how to get to heaven has to have died first to have field-tested their theory. But there's a small problem with that. 
since there's a dearth of dead people walking around and willing to talk about heaven. So, we all agree, you need to die, but after that, it's all speculation. And I would say, not just speculation, but assumption. And here's where our myth takes shape. It's built on a very popular assumption on heaven, which simply put, goes like this. Good people go to heaven. Good people go to heaven. That's it. It's so popular you can find this theory on heaven all around the world. Almost all of the major religions have some version of this theory. And everyone you meet on the street holds to it, just about. Here's the problem, though. It's a myth. I mean, it doesn't make any sense when you think about it, which most people don't. So why don't they? Well, I don't know. Maybe they're too busy living to think about dying. But when a mom or dad or wife or husband dies, then we're faced with it. And I see it at every funeral I officiate. People think about their morality and mortality, and things get pretty uncomfortable. Ah, but then someone starts to talk about all the good deeds this person did and what a good person they were, and everyone relaxes and says, of course, good people go to heaven. And the problem is that the myth is based on this logic. There's a good God who lives in a good place reserved for good people. And this God goes by many names. He's behind all the major world religions. And of course, that means that all major religions and all minor religions provide a path to this good place. The path is not in the religion. It's that the good people in the religion, the good Muslims, the good Buddhists, the good Catholics, the good Jews, and the good Christians go to heaven. Now, let's be honest. honest. I think it's true that the vast majority of people believe this. I mean, go ask the average person in the street about heaven, if they think about it at all, and it's just passed off with a simple, well, I mean, I'm a good person, so I figure I'm okay. They're always quick to add, well, of course I'm not perfect, as if they needed to say that. Like, oh, you're not? I would have never guessed. Okay, let me scratch that assumption off my list then. Thank you for clarifying the fact that you're not perfect. Now, of course, it's an attractive way to think, isn't it? Some of you are believers. You believe in the whole Yeshua thing. But some of you may still think this way too. Good people go to heaven. Why? Because we're the good people. How many people have you met who have ever said, heaven's for good people and I'm not one of them? Nobody. We're good people. How many bad people in this room? Ooh, you are a different congregation for sure. (laughs) It's an appealing myth for three reasons. One, because it's fair. God is good as rewarded, bad as punished. That seems fair, doesn't it? B, because it motivates us to be good. If the good people go to heaven, then I should be good. And three, C, because it's consistent with God's goodness. If God is good, then only good people can be with him. So it's got some common sense going on, but there's some fatal flaws in this idea, which is what makes it a myth 
and a myth according to the Bible, number one, it's not consistent with the word of God. Since nobody's perfect, who gets to answer the question, how good is good enough? A Barna Research Group poll asked the following question. It said, if, was this phrase in the Bible or not? God helps those who help themselves. And according to the Barna poll, 80% of Americans believe that that phrase is in the Bible. Surprise! It's not. But see, that's the myth. God helps the good people, the ones who pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But let's just ask some simple questions. How much do you have to help yourself before God helps you? A day? A week? All the days in a two-year period? And how much does God help? In proportion to your effort? Or do you have to help yourself 15% of the time? Or... 50% of the time, or 67% of the time. I mean, that can override a veto. When does God stop helping? After 10 failures? After two failures? When does God throw in the towel on us? When does God give up helping? Is your head spinning yet? We can't answer those questions, can we? It's too subjective. But still, despite that, we think God's just going to let us into heaven based on our subjective ideas of how much good is good enough. I mean, isn't it true that some people do some things that they thought were good that others thought were very bad? So let's compare. Let's do some comparisons, shall we? Does God like thieves better than murderers? Does he like abortion doctors better than racists? Does he like Nazis better than communists? Does he like Americans better than Canadians? Does he like gossipy women? Does he like gossipy women better than lying men? Does God like pornographers better than self-righteous pastors? Does God like abusive drunks better than materialistic business owners? Does God like lusty frat boys better than militaristic madmen? Does God like people who commit tax fraud and evasion better than child molesters? Does God like lawyers better than politicians? All right, that's a tough call. Now I got everybody's head spinning, right? See, since we all readily admit we're not perfect, then a good God must grade on a, grade on a curve somehow. But what curve? What mysterious scale are we talking about? There were some well-meaning Southerners, respectable people, who beat and raped their slaves. Where do they fall on the curve? There were some sincere Nazis who thought they were doing good. Saddam Hussein died thinking himself an Iraqi hero. We have his thoughts on videotape. Who's to say your definition of good enough is the same as God's? If God grades on a curve, friends, whose curve? Yours? You expect God to bend your ideas of right and wrong? Make a new heaven for every person? That's an interesting idea. But did you just make that up? How is it that not how is it how is that not just wishful thinking? I'm going to bank my eternity on somebody's hearts and flowers? 
Rainbows and unicorns? I don't think so. We need some authority on the subject. But let's say, I mean, just for the sake of argument, that good enough is simply just living my own conscience. Whatever my conscience tells me is right and wrong. That's all. Just my own internal compass is all I have to follow. It's the only test that I have to pass. Even if that was the bar, how many of us cross it? Which of us lives up to our own standards? Now, at this point, I'm not appealing to authority, but to common sense. And I'm not trying to tell you that Christianity is right at this point. I just want you to think critically about this. Good enough is just too nebulous. I mean, who decided that was the scale? You might say, well, God knows who's good enough. I'm sure he does. But how do you know you're one of them? Here's number two against this common sense theory. It's not biblical. Now, at this point, some of you will say, well, I've got the good book, and I do good things that are in the good book. Well, if any of you say that, I just want to say three words. Don't go there. (laughs) Because according to the Bible, God doesn't grade on a curve at all. He has one standard and only one, and that standard is perfection. 100%. Doing all the right things at all the right times for all the right reasons. Perfection. God says it no less than 17 places in the scriptures. Be holy because I am holy. I met this one atheist once and he said to me, if I die and I was wrong about the God thing, I know God will say to me, friend, you kook, (laughs) you had it so wrong, but you were a good person. Go on into my heaven, you knucklehead. I said, how do you know you're a good person? He said, well, I lived my life by the Sermon on the Mount. I thought, really? Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? Because if you're banking on that to get you into heaven, well, you're in trouble. You see, in the most famous sermon in history, Yeshua says in Matthew 5, 48, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And he continues, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And in case there was some doubt as to what he meant by that, he explains in detail in other parts of the sermon. You've heard the saying that staying morally pure means having sex with only one spouse you made promises to? No. Adultery from God's point of view occurs even when you gaze at another person as an object of lust. And murder? According to Yeshua, do not murder includes keeping from uncontrolled outbursts of anger. Like, for example, when you see the guy driving like an idiot on the freeway. Let me just quote Yeshua. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Matthew 5, 22. Think of that one the next time someone's going 42 miles an hour in the left lane. Yeah, gentle Yeshua, meek and mild said that. Now some might say, if what Messiah is telling me is true, then nobody's going to heaven based on being good enough. Bingo! That's right. Nobody's good enough. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, Jew, Gentile, whatever you are, 
and fallen short of the glory of God and of God's glorious standard. If you're trusting in all the Bible's wonderful, high, lofty moral code to be your ticket to heaven, I am sorry to disappoint you, but God didn't give you the moral code to get to heaven. He gave it for many reasons. To expose the character of God, to show you a healthy way to live, but he did not give it to you to get to heaven. Here's why he gave it. Romans 3.20 No one will be declared righteous, good enough, justified in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Dear one, in a very real sense, the thing the Bible's moral code does for us is not to make us better, but to make us worse. What I mean is, the good book actually increases our understanding and awareness of our own badness. I'm not arguing that's good or bad at this point. I'm just saying that if you're trusting in the Bible's moral code to be your ticket to be good enough, you're simply on the wrong track. Don't go there. It's like burning your finger on a candle and sticking it into a hot stove to make it feel better. <laughs> the Bible just increases that sense that we have that we can never be good enough on our own. And third, that assumption, that myth that good is good enough is opposed to grace. It is opposed to grace. Now some of you are saying, okay, Dennis, if the good people don't go to heaven, who does? Well, you want something more than my speculation on this topic? The teaching of Yeshua, who, by the way, is the only man who was dead for three days and came back to tell us about heaven, is this. But now the Bible says a righteousness that is a perfect level of goodness is available apart from the law. That is, apart from my moral or religious efforts to be good enough, this goodness, this moral perfection from God comes through trusting Yeshua HaMashiach and is available to anyone who believes. Romans 3, 21 and 22. So, let me say it clear, according to Yeshua, it's not the good people who go to heaven, it's the forgiven people. It's not the good people who go to heaven, it's the forgiven people. So if we can assume that forgiven people are people who have a lot of bad to be forgiven in, your lives, in their lives, then we might say it's only the bad people who go to heaven. That's it. Those willing to admit their badness, to confess, to repent, and to trust God for mercy. It's a gift of grace to the people who ask for it. Now we all have skeptic friends who... Talk about how unfair the Christian system is. It's the famous Ted Bundy objection. You know, Ted Bundy, who killed and raped and assaulted many, many young women in the early 1970s. So any fool can repent and get on their deathbed and ask Yeshua into their heart and that's it? How unfair! Bundy, by the way, became a believer while he was waiting on death row. Yeshua actually gave a Ted Bundy parable. Did you know that? Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16. A farmer goes out one day to hire people for a good and generous wage. Same day, he hires another set of people at noon for the same wage. Then at like 4.30 in the afternoon, you know, like 
half an hour before the whistle, before Miller time, if you know what I mean. He hires more people, again, for the same wage. And the people are indignant. Indignant. It's unfair. It's unfair, the farmer asks. Are you jealous because I'm so generous, he says? That's what the people say. Unfair. It's a joke, they say. Well, what's more unfair? A system where God says, I want you all to be good enough, race for heaven, but no one will know the rules and no one knows the finish line. The path won't be marked out. A system where if you're set up with a bad set of parents or born in the wrong country, Nazi Germany, you're automatically disqualified. Or if you're born in a good situation with good parents, you're automatically in. Or a system where everyone's invited. A system where it's totally equal because everyone gets in the same way through grace and not earning it. And a system where anyone, no matter their badness or past or upbringing, can meet the standard. I mean, what's more fair than that? What's more fair? Through Messiah, God has made relationship with him as easy as possible. On the day he was crucified, the Bible says that the criminal next to him called out to him and said, Yeshua, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did our Messiah say? Does he say, well, have you been good enough, bro? Did you have a good heart underneath all that murder and lying and stealing? No. This is what he says. I assure you, today, you will be with me in paradise. A commitment to be a good person doesn't mean much from a cross, does it? I'm going to be a better man, Yeshua. For the next five minutes of my life, I'm going to be a better husband and father. No. It's just a trusting faith in the Messiah of Israel. And God makes you righteous. Good enough. Not one good work is required. Not one. It's God's work from start to finish. Everyone is invited. No one is excluded based on ethnicity or past or gender or, gender or moral pedigree. Everyone gets in the same way through a gift, not by works, so that no one can boast. Everyone can meet the standard. Everyone gets righteousness as a gift. Everyone becomes good enough. Goodness is given to them in Yeshua. In Yeshua, as you talked about your trace this weekend. Are you getting this? No preconditions. I don't know what your past is, but God wants to liberate you from the curse of the curve of not measuring up. He wants to relieve you of the curse of your relentless self-efforts to meet the expectations of God. No good works required, not one, not one precondition, save for faith and trust in God's forgiving love. And some say, and I believe it may be true, even that faith is a gift. It's a gift that God gives. It's grace, unearned favor from God. But here's the bitter irony. So you now know the myth and how crazy it is to think good is good enough. 
And now you know the good news, the gospel, that God has made a way to heaven through Messiah Yeshua, by which everyone's invited, everyone gets in the same way, and everyone can meet the standard. But you want to know what the irony is? The bitter irony is many people despise this gospel. Grace, they say, is scandalous. It shocks us. It mocks our ideas of what's fair. Yeshua says, if it was fair, we'd all be condemned. You know why this is so shocking and scandalous? Because of pride. You mean I'm no better in God's sight than my awful neighbor? You mean Ted Bundy just lives like a hellion and repents in prison and he's in? You mean all my good deeds, they mean nothing to God? It's not that they mean nothing to God, my dear friends. It's like a boy asking his dad for 10 bucks to buy him a present and giving it back to his dad. The father surely appreciates the gift, but no one thinks he's 10 bucks to the good in the exchange. Every good thing you do is first from God, the giver of all good gifts. It's scandalous, I know. People stumble over it, and many good people will never be forgiven because of their pride. In fact, that's what our word scandal means. It comes from the Greek stumbling block. You know what grace means? It means that on the day of judgment, there'll be surprises. Yeshua said in Matthew 21, 31, the prostitutes and the tax collectors are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you good folk because they understood the way to life and you didn't. You get it? The good people weren't getting in and Yeshua said the bad people were. Why? Why were the broken and messed up getting it and the moral people, the upstanding people, not getting it? I'll tell you why. Because they were under no illusion that they could ever be good enough. So because they had long ago given up on being good enough, they can come humbly to God, desperate, lowly, contrite, and just believing with a reckless hope that maybe, just maybe, God will be merciful to them. Guess what? That is exactly what God wants. That's exactly what he wants. And so he forgives them. And Yeshua says, these are now candidates for heaven. These are the people who go to heaven, my forgiven ones, who come to me childlike and not proud. And the bitter irony is that many, many will not come this way. When the good people saw this way, the way that Yeshua set the terms for heaven. They were indignant. These people don't deserve heaven. But I want you to catch what he says to them. I did not come for the well, but for the sick. I asked a friend who likes Yeshua a lot, but hates the whole atonement idea, the idea that we're bad and we need to be fixed. I said, are you spiritually sick? He really didn't know what to say. I said, well, if you aren't, then Yeshua didn't come for you. You're not a part of the audience. He came to save. If you're not sick, then when it comes to heaven, you're on your own. You want to justify yourself with good works? Good works? Fine, he says. Here's the book. Do everything in it. I'll remind you what it says in Galatians 5.3. Be a debtor to keep the whole law. 
That's why in church services, every year, every week, I mean, all over the country, every Sunday, people come down the aisle to rededicate their lives again and again and again and again and again. And after about the fifth time, ladies and gentlemen, they have just plain worn out their rededicators. That's not the way it works. You want to justify yourself with good books? Fine, he says. Here's the book. Do everything in it. Be perfect. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Mother Teresa's of the world, you have no hope for heaven. So, that's belief in grace, dear ones. I admit it, it's scandalous. Salvation, there's no curve and no condemnation. But this is the cost. Full trust. Full trust. Not trust in yourself. Full trust in God's grace for you through Messiah. But for all who will humble themselves at the level ground in front of Messiah's cross, the gospel is indeed incredibly good news. It is life and health and peace and joy and freedom and a transformed life. And it is, and I'm afraid this is very unpopular to say in our culture, it is the only way to heaven. But thank God, and he didn't have to, but he has made a way by grace through faith. And let us all say, Amen. Will you please stand with me as we close with the benediction? Make sure that no one stands alone. May the Lord, may the Lord bless and keep you. May his grace and his face shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, and give you peace. Yivarech Adonai v'yishmerecha, Yair Adonai panave lecha v'yichunecha, Yisa Adonai panave lecha v'yasem lecha shalom. Be a same lecha shalom. This is the way you shall be blessed. From day to day, he'll be your rest. This is the way you shall be blessed. From day to day, he is your rest. May the Lord, may the Lord bless and keep you. May his grace and his face shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace and give you peace, and give you peace, and give you peace.
Let's bless the wine and the bread before we go down to our time of fellowship. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Borei b'riha gafen. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings bread from the earth. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam. Asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav itzivanu alachilat ma'atzah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with your commandments and commands us regarding the eating of matzah. Let us all say together, Amen. Shabbat Shalom.